leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards in stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Silico Medicine is working to harness artificial intelligence to address diseases of aging and in the process reinvent the way new drugs are discovered and developed. Its AI platform is integrated into the continuum of the discovery and development process and seeks to improve target identification, the selection of drug candidates, and predict clinical trial outcomes. In addition to working in collaboration with large pharmaceutical companies, Insilico is pursuing its own internal drug discovery programs in a range of diseases of aging. We spoke to Alex Zavronkov, CEO of Insilico Medicine, about the company's platform technology, the potential for AI to transform the discovery and development of drugs, and why Insilico focuses its efforts on diseases of aging. Alex, thanks for joining us. Uh, Happy to be here. We're going to talk about in silico medicine its efforts to use artificial intelligence to improve drug development and drug discovery, and why you think this approach may be able to tackle some of the most intractable disease areas by going after diseases of aging. Uh, Drug discovery and and development remains a, a highly inefficient process that's often defined by failure. What's wrong with the way we discover and develop drugs today? Well, there is uh, lots of things that are wrong. And uh, uh, I guess, firstly, it would be worthwhile noting that uh, uh, there were many advances in artificial intelligence that transpired uh, over the past few years. So essentially, since 2014, the industry has changed uh, beyond recognition. And... uh, uh, just recently, so yesterday, uh, the uh, number one conference on machine learning called NIPS uh, in, uh, uh, held in Canada this year uh, was sold out faster than Bob Burning Man. Uh, they sold out registrations in uh, less than 15 minutes. So that, that, that area is becoming hot. And uh, you see that there are really tangible advances in many areas of uh, AI um, including machine vision, so you now have uh, superhuman accuracy in uh, uh, image recognition, in autonomous driving, in voice recognition, text recognition, and many other tasks. So now it's the time to put this technology to work uh, for pharma. And uh, uh, the pharmaceutical R&D, uh, as you correctly mentioned, is on the decline, and it's one of the most inefficient industries on the planet. 
Uh, and, you know, if you're thinking about the uh, potential of AI in other industries, you know, autonomous driving uh, is going to be disruptive, but it's already disrupting an industry which is reasonably efficient. You always get from point A to point B with, you know, reasonable accuracy. Uh, but uh, in, in the pharmaceutical R&D, you've got 90% failure rates and uh, $2.6 billion is uh, in uh, direct costs uh, per drug. So uh, it's clearly inefficient. And uh, one of the reasons for this inefficiency is uh, a lack of uh, holistic approach to, to R&D. Uh, the cycles, the development cycles, uh, are usually uh, in decades. So you're talking about, you know, six, seven years to develop a cancer drug from uh, uh, discovery to, to market, and sometimes longer, and that's for rare cancers, so, so where uh, uh, drug development uh, is reasonably swift. Uh, and in some other uh, disease areas, uh, it's much longer, and uh, it takes a very long time uh, to go from uh, hypothesis to, uh, uh, to, to market, and lots of things can help, can, 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 uh, can fail. So at every step of the, of the process. So at the hypothesis generation, you've got lots of academics, uh, uh, with asymmetric, uh, knowledge and asymmetric data, uh, reporting their findings in uh, many peer reviewed journals. So sometimes you don't know who to trust and the body of knowledge is growing, but, uh, it, it lacks clarity. Uh, then if you move into, into the omics and the target identification, uh, it's very difficult to identify relevant targets for specific diseases, and some diseases have more than one target. So most of the pharmaceutical R&D, I think, fails because uh, the target associated with the disease is wrong. Uh, and then uh, the next phase of the pharmaceutical R&D, where you're talking about uh, uh, developing great molecules or antibodies or other interventions for a specific target. Um, that's where you can get it very wrong uh, in terms of toxicity, in terms of uh, side effects, uh, in terms of the various properties of the molecule. And just uh, sometimes the known chemical space is not enough uh, to provide for uh, efficient molecules for specific targets. Specific, uh, provide specific inhibitors. And then uh, you move forward uh, down the pharmaceutical R&D line, um, pipeline, and you go into, uh, let's say, clinical trials. Uh, and uh, in clinical trials, you need to account for the population differences because every disease, uh, are, well, most diseases are heterogeneous and uh, patients do not respond uh, in the same way the patients are different, their age is different, their gender is different. Uh, nowadays, we actually call it sex, not gender, because gender is optional. Um, uh, their uh, um, uh, race is different, their diet is different. So it's very difficult to tailor a drug regimen for a specific uh, patient uh, at this point of time. Uh, right uh, at the beginning of the uh, drug discovery uh, R&D cycle. And then uh, when you're marketing this, uh, uh, this drug, uh, usually you're marketing not to the same exact population uh, that was participating in clinical trials, and uh, sometimes drugs on the market do not work. So 
are if you account the failure rate of every step of the pharmaceutical R&D, uh, you get that 90% failure rate or even more if you account for, you know, lack of real cures, uh, even considering the drugs on the market. Uh, so if well, most of our competitors and actually um, uh, most of the uh, uh, most of the pharma companies uh, who are involved in pharmaceutical R&D, they segment every one of those uh, uh, steps of pharmaceutical R&D in, in different pockets. So they compartmentalize uh, R&D, uh, and uh, very few people have the holistic view on uh, on the entire process. So I think that's where AI can uh, can be very helpful, and uh, you can do end to end le learning nowadays to try to incorporate real world insights right away into hypothesis generation, uh, and also learn from chemistry into biology and uh, uh, from biology into chemistry, and uh, I think that's where AI can make major impact. Uh, and Silco's not alone in in seeking to harness artificial intelligence to improve the process of drug discovery. I want to dig down into the different aspects of your approach, but from a broad point of view, how does InSilico differ from others trying to do the same thing in terms of bringing AI into the, the drug development process? So you would be surprised uh, um, with how few companies actually are there who are really applying AI to drug discovery. So a lot of people who used to be doing Excel or, uh, you know, very basic bioinformatics are now repositioning themselves as AI companies. Uh, and that was actually specifically true uh, just a couple of years ago when deep learning was very exotic and it was very difficult to find, tal find talent. Um, so people started repositioning without having any anything uh, in hand uh, to show for, um, and uh, we were one of the first companies to uh, enter the field with deep learning in mind. So we started doing deep learning in 2014. Uh, so my background is in GPU computing uh, with ATI technologies, and uh, many of my colleagues come from GPU computing uh, and um, a GPU GPU background. Uh, where uh, we started uh, applying deep learning on um, the omics data and then moved into chemistry. Uh, and uh, now we have, uh, I would call it a team, but it's really, uh, um, uh, it's really, uh, uh, I would say, a uh, uh, family of uh, deep learning scientists. We have 27 deep learning scientists overall out of the 56 people globally. Uh, and um, we embrace that particular technology. So deep learning, reinforcement learning, uh, next generation AI, uh, and uh, we also do not focus on just one specific uh, task. So we don't just focus on compound binding or uh, uh, disease target association or uh, digital medicine. Uh, we try to employ end-to-end -end learning. So our pipeline looks like uh, a bunch of Lego blocks interconnected together uh, each one expanding uh, with time, uh, growing and learning, but it's always an interconnected pipeline uh, which uh, uh, looks at the real-world evidence, takes uh, the insights back into hypothesis generation, uh, and we started doing some really cool stuff with, uh, uh, with medicinal chemistry. So we were the first company to uh, uh, start applying generative adversarial networks, a really new flavor of uh, uh, AI and deep learning. 
um, that is basically commonly dubbed uh, AI imagination. And we start uh, uh, generating novel molecular structures for specific uh, molecules, for specific proteins, um, uh, with specific uh, uh, molecular properties. So we can uh, now design molecules de novo, uh, com completely outside of known chemical space and breaking uh, most of the pharmaceutical uh, companies' patents, uh, with properties like uh, solubility, bioavailability, um, so half-time uh, elimination time, um, uh, blood-blood-brain barrier, uh, and uh, uh, specific inhibition of uh, a specific uh, protein target. Uh, and we can do multi-targeting compounds well uh, using that, that novel technique. Uh, and we also moved to, to uh, different representations of the molecular structure, both for the ligand and for the target. Uh, and now we can uh, uh, generate uh, those novel molecules for targets that uh, do not have uh, crystal structure and uh, uh, do not have uh, training sets where, you know, some of the known chemistry has been shown to be effective for inhibitors of, of a specific protein target. And also another uh, differentiating factor is that we are focused on uh, aging research, uh, not for the purposes of, uh, you know, making humans immortal uh, or uh, other kind of big claims. Uh, we are uh, using aging research to look at biology in a very holistic way, to understand how the various biological processes change uh, from uh, young, middle-aged, old to very old patients uh, in order to tailor interventions for, um, uh, for people of specific age. Uh, and um, uh, we also uh, identify molecules that uh, potentiate uh, vaccine response, potentiate the response to IO, uh, immune oncology, um, uh, and help build biological age-adjusted clinical trials. Uh, and in general, deep learning allows you to, uh, um, uh, deep learning on aging allows you to capture a lot of biological, uh, biologically relevant features from multiple data types. And you learn on age, and then you can relearn on specific diseases and identify targets that are uh, relevant in both. So that's our primary modus operandi. From, from a, a platform point of view, there seems to be three related thrusts to your platform to go from one end to the other. I'd like you to walk us through those three parts, target identification, small molecule leads, and, and predicting clinical outcomes. What's the process, and what do you look at in each of these pieces? What, what, what are the inputs, and, and what are you able to do better? Uh, so we think of ourselves as a, um, uh, as a deep learning pyramid, uh, where you go from the hardware level uh, into, um, uh, into, the, uh, in, in, into the data la layer and then into the library layer and then into the service layer and application la layer. And we uh, sit primarily uh, on, on the library level where we build uh, deep learning libraries for uh, um, both biology, uh, chemistry and clinical trials outcomes predictors and also real-world evidence gathering. 
Uh, so it's an end-to-end -end, uh, uh, pipeline which allows uh, some deep learning scientists to write uh, two, uh, two pages of code to create molecules with specific uh, molecular properties or at the same time uh, run a multi-omics uh, uh, analysis to identify relevant targets and identify most important features. Um, and uh, we work with multiple data types for target ID. So pri the primary data type and the most valuable data type that we um, focus on uh, is uh, transcriptomics and proteomics data, so gene expression, uh, uh, coming from multiple tissues and from multiple patient subspecies, and also from cell, uh, cell lines. Uh, and we try to learn uh, from transcriptional response uh, data uh, coming from uh, all kinds of uh, high throughput experiments to understand what uh, um, uh, what, disease, what targets are most uh, relevant to specific diseases or specific disease models. Uh, and we also employ uh, pretty sophisticated dimensionality reduction tools where we group, group uh, genes uh, and proteins into networks and look at the differential state change of those networks uh, in time, but also uh, between uh, normal tissue and uh, tissue afflicted by disease. So we build those disease signatures and then deconvolute them into targets. Uh, so where, uh, where, where enough data is available. And where the data is uh, sufficiently abundant, uh, we also train deep neural networks on those pathways and pathway scores, uh, and at the same time on individual uh, uh, genes. Uh, and we can combine it with methylation uh, uh, data and uh, microRNA data. Uh, sometimes we also include phenotypic data um, uh, and train uh, the deep neural networks to predict, uh, let's say, age or specific disease status uh, or specific disease um, or differentiation status of, uh, uh, of the cells if we're working on the cell level and then extract the most relevant features and pathways back from those networks. Uh, so that's how we usually do target ID. Um, and for uh, for the chemistry uh, part of it, so where we identify novel molecules for um, uh, specific protein targets that we identify uh, in the target ID pipeline, uh, we have the generative model that I've just described previously, uh, where we um, pretty much imagine new molecular structures with specific properties for uh, uh, specific protein targets. Uh, or we also mine the non-chemical space uh, and uh, see what molecules have the highest probability of uh, you know, being good inhibitors or uh, activators of a, uh, of, a, of a target protein, and at the same time possess uh, certain favorable properties that make them good leads or hits or leads. Um, and then we have uh, uh, another piece of the pipeline, so clinical trials outcomes predictors. It's a very venturous area, and I cannot make uh, substantial claims to, you know, back some of my uh, uh, hypotheses that, you know, they work, <laughs> uh, because it's very, very difficult to validate. And uh, we see that sometimes uh, people who are so associated with a clinical study uh, and uh, the various properties of, uh, around the people who are associated with you, around the clinical study uh, uh, contribute more to the probability of the successful clinical outcome than, uh, you know, the availability of the omics data or specific structural properties of the molecule uh, or uh, uh, 
the various uh, literature evidence that uh, this molecule is likely to uh, to be successful in certain disease. Um, so we we mine, uh, uh, of course, literature, patents, uh, and uh, we also put a lot of emphasis on government grants. So we mine about $1.6 trillion of government grants uh, from the uh, early 90s to today uh, from uh, European Commission, uh, 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 NIH, uh, Australia and Canada, and also some Asian data to understand the, uh, you know, where, where the trends are and to try to capture signals early. Uh, we also combine it with all kinds of uh, uh, published and uh, publicly available uh, data about the scientists who are involved with uh, every one of those studies and try to build knowledge graphs that uh, help us uh, get some signals uh, about the possible uh, success uh, of um, of a small molecule or a biologic uh, in um, a certain stage of a clinical trial, and try to get the signals uh, uh, to the stage where they're more interpretable. That that seems to be one of the the tempting aspects of AI: this ability to work with vast amounts of data to gain new insights to to tap data that may be unstructured. How do you know what data is meaningful from an input point of view? So that's a great question. And uh, most of the time, uh, uh, this knowledge comes from experience. So you, uh, uh, we, we, we run a lot of uh, uh, experiments to see what data type uh, might be more valuable and also what combination of data types might be more valuable. Uh, and uh, I think at this point of time, uh, most of the AI teams are uh, kind of scratching the surface of uh, what we call uh, live data economics and uh, uh, also micro data economics, so uh, data coming from uh, uh, chemistry and, uh, and biology. Uh, and uh, as more AI teams uh, enter this area and start thinking about, uh, you know, what data uh, is more valuable for specific application. Um, we are likely to find out, uh, you know, more about what data should be collected. I'll give you just one brief example. Uh, so sometimes people put a lot of emphasis and value uh, on geno in, in genomic data, and uh, sometimes pictures might be just very simple selfies might be more informative than a genome because from the picture you can derive uh, uh, age, uh, sex, uh, social status, body composition, um, uh, and all kinds of, you know, quality of the skin, uh, sometimes the various genetic diseases. Uh, and with AI, it could be hugely accurate. But you cannot do that with a genome uh, with the same level of accuracy. So for some applications, some data types are more relevant. Uh, and uh, even though those data types are very cheap and uh, abundant. Um, but the combination of those data types uh, might be extremely valuable because if you combine a picture with a genome uh, in large quantities, you can derive many more insights than just from pictures or just from genomes. Uh, and same is true for, uh, for kind of micro data uh, where we derive uh, data from cell line experiments uh, and uh, uh, primary cell experiments or uh, tissue biopsy experiments. Uh, and uh, um, I think that uh, right now the jury is still out what data is 
more relevant for target ID because, of course, uh, if you have a great protein target at hand for a specific disease that is validated, uh, you are very likely to score a home run with, uh, with a great pharmaceutical product. And uh, for that, I think, you know, CRISPR screens are very important combined with uh, all kinds of uh, phenotypic assays uh, and uh, um, uh, combined with a lot of imaging data, uh, organoid uh, data, and, of course, body and the chip data. I think those data types are uh, hugely valuable. Uh, I put much less emphasis on animal data. As you mentioned earlier, Insilico's focus in the area of aging, is there something about finding biomarkers or targets and drugs in this area that better lends itself to an AI approach? Is this just seen as an area of greater opportunity? It's kind of a bit of both, but one important uh, um, fact that we've discovered, which is pretty much, you know, a very low-hanging fruit and which is pretty obvious, is that uh, age is the most abundant feature associated with pretty much every data type. Uh, so, you know, my table has age, my computer has age, my uh, uh, my friends have age, uh, uh, every patient has age, uh, and uh, it's reasonably easy to train uh, deep neural nets to predict the age of the patient on uh, various data types and also uh, various tissue-specific data types, disease-specific data types. Uh, and um, we usually start uh, with an age predictor when we try to analyze the value of the data type, for example. If I cannot predict the person's age uh, in a differential manner um, when I'm uh, working with specific data, I feel that it's a little bit less valuable to me uh, because uh, if I train some of those predictors on very large data sets of gene expression data, for example, I capture a lot of biologically relevant features, and I can then retrain on much smaller subset of uh, samples uh, with a specific disease, uh, and um, capture the, uh, the features that are, uh, that are implicated uh, specifically in, uh, uh, in, in a disease. And then I can derive those features using various uh, uh, machine learning techniques uh, we've developed for feature ex extraction, feature importance, and uh, feature selection. Uh, and uh, aging is just one of the tools to aggregate multimodal data very efficiently, uh, in addition to, of course, identifying the protein targets that are implicated in both aging and disease. From a, a biological point of view, what is aging? What are the meaningful measures? And does altering those measures pharmaceutically translate into arresting the aging process? Will that help people stay young and healthy? Uh, well, this subject is great for, you know, PR and uh, outreach because uh, people like to talk about uh, all kinds of anti-aging uh, miracles. Uh, but in reality, uh, age, again, is a very, it's a, it's a great uh, feature to uh, train deep neural nets on to actually understand those uh, complex biological processes. I think aging is for perhaps one of the most complex uh, biological processes out there, and it's hugely multifactorial uh, and hugely diverse. Uh, so uh, it's very difficult to even explain what aging is. There are 
hundreds of theories trying to do exactly that. Uh, so we try to be theory agnostic and uh, uh, think of aging just as one of the biological processes that we want to capture using deep neural nets and uh, correlate it with disease. Uh, of course, uh, in one way, uh, aging resembles disease because uh, we are likely to be significantly worse when we are in our 80s compared to uh, ourselves in, in our 30s. So that differential drift sometimes is uh, more harmful than uh, uh, many diseases. Uh, and of course, age is a major uh, risk factor in most of the age-associated diseases and most diseases in general. Uh, so things break over time. Uh, damage is accumulating. Uh, the repair mechanisms are not uh, ideal, so they miss uh, uh, all kinds of damage all the time. Uh, there are lots of environmental factors that uh, contribute to age. And just in general, we uh, most of the biological organisms are uh, uh, are evolved to uh, uh, come to this life, uh, reproduce, uh, care for their young, and uh, gracefully decline. So they are not built to last forever. And uh, ideally, what we should be looking for is uh, uh, come up with an ideal age, an ideal health, in the ideal health state, so let's say 25 to 35, in the ideal health state for, for every individual, that would be the ideal uh, biological state uh, on every level, and we should look for, uh, for changes away from this state into pathology and uh, find ways to prevent those, uh, those changes either using pharmaceutical interventions or all kinds of uh, other interventions that are available um, uh, in our current toolkit or future toolkits. So I think, you know, the closer we, uh, we are and the closer we keep uh, the patients uh, to this, you know, 25 to 35 uh, optimal health state, uh, the less uh, likely a person is going to develop a, uh, in any kind of disease. What's the business model? I know Insilico has entered into a number of partnerships where a new company is formed. Is that the model? Is Insilico a service company? Is it licensing phase one ready drugs? Is, is the goal to build your own pipeline? Well, to be absolutely honest with you, uh, before last year, we were hunting for a business model. So we were, we were exploring the space. And uh, recently we decided to... Uh, uh, develop a more firm uh, approach to, uh, to to our to our business, and uh, uh, our business model is in licensing uh, the um, disease target molecule associations uh, to either small biotech companies or uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, and uh, the more confidence we get in. Uh, uh, in those uh, disease target molecule applications, uh, the more we can ask for those uh, uh, for, for, for those uh, uh, therapeutic uh, programs uh, in terms of the upfront payment uh, milestones and royalties. 
And so far, we started building this confidence internally and also externally. And people start partnering uh, with us uh, around those specific uh, kind of bullets for the war on uh, cancer, the war on Alzheimer's, ALS, and some rare diseases. Uh, so that's uh, the primary business model. Of course, we also go from time to time for bounty hunting deals where uh, pharmaceutical companies challenge us to a project and uh, ask us to perform uh, uh, an impossible task. Uh, usually it's an impossible task because uh, it's, uh, it's been tried internally and uh, it didn't work. And uh, sometimes we agree to those uh, projects where we get a uh, substantial bounty if we achieve certain milestones. So that's, an, uh, that, that's the kind of second uh, business model, and it's uh, uh, almost an extension of the, uh, of the uh, licensing of highly promising leads. Uh, we also uh, have the forward-looking uh, model uh, where we develop uh, consumer-facing uh, applications like Young.ai uh, that allow people to play around with their data uh, in a fun and uh, very engaging way where uh, we build age predictors uh, that essentially give a prediction of the person's age at uh, various levels using various data types, uh, and people play with those tools. And as those, as those tools mature, we're likely to launch them as separate apps uh, that will be revenue-generating. I'd like to talk about one recent announcement, the deal you entered into with the Buck Institute on Aging and Genescence to form a new company, Napa Therapeutics, which is going to develop novel drugs against aging-related targets. Napa is built around NAD metabolism on work done by Eric Verdon, the CEO of the Buck Institute. What is NAD metabolism, and what makes this a compelling area for targeting aging? Well, there are actually several credible stories in um, aging research that uh, popped up over the past uh, uh, decade. And, uh, you know, some of those stories are synolytics and, you know, Unity Therapeutics was just recently formed out of the Buck Institute and went public. Uh, this is, uh, uh, this company is looking uh, to develop uh, molecules that target senescent cells. And uh, the second uh, I would say most credible uh, uh, area of aging research that uh, uh, matured into uh, credible drug development for specific diseases uh, is NAD metabolism. So you can see that uh, some of the molecules like nicotinamide drubazide and uh, nicotinamide mononucleotide uh, that are also sold as uh, uh, supplements uh, you see some evidence that they are also implicated in uh, certain diseases and uh, in aging in general, in model organisms and already humans. So there is a lot of evidence pointing at uh, NAD metabolism as a very promising area for uh, age-related uh, disease research. And uh, just like with the Synalytics, uh, the Bach Institute for uh, Research on Aging is... Um, uh, the world's uh, epicenter for uh, for research and for commercialization opportunities. So the new CEO of the Buck Institute, Eric Verdon, I think his um, H index, which is essentially the number of research papers with the same number of citations, 
uh, is over 100. So he is an extremely established academic, and uh, a substantial part of his career was spent on mad metabolism. So that's why uh, the press picked up on that particular uh, aspect of our story. Uh, but of course, his lab covers a much broader spectrum of projects uh, beyond mad metabolism. And we cannot specifically disclose the targets we're going after, but that target is uh, directly or indirectly implicated in that metabolism and is probably around uh, one of the top targets I've seen in my career, and I've seen a lot. Uh, so when we realized that Buck uh, uh, is partnering with Juvenescence, which is actually one of our investors and also uh, an old collaborator, uh, we have a joint venture with Juvenescence um, called Juvenescence AI, which is developing uh, some of our um, uh, compounds. Uh, when, I, when we saw that they are partnering around that particular target, we immediately decided to take part in this story because I think it's just too good to miss. And what will Insilico's role be with, within Napa? Well, we are uh, we are a novel chemistry discovery company. So our role is to generate really highly potent molecules for a very very promising target and a promising disease biology. As you think about your work, what would you say the biggest challenge in getting all of this to come together and, and make a, a big leap forward on moving the needle on the time and cost of drug development is? Uh, so I think that the uh, the major question there and major challenge is uh, trust and uh, validation. So it's very difficult to convince uh, the pharma company and also the very established uh, uh, academic community um, that AI is the way to go. Uh, most people who are not very familiar with uh, with, the, with both uh, AI and uh, biology and chemistry at the same time, uh, they like to call this area uh, as an overhyped area, and it's partially true, again, primarily because of, uh, you know, people who were using Excel previously, uh, rebranding as uh, AI companies, uh, that cannot go beyond the new regression or some very traditional machine learning methods, uh, or that are focused in uh, specific silos. Uh, and uh, there is still lack of trust uh, in the pharmaceutical industry in, uh, in AI techniques. So that's one, uh, one problem. And the second problem is that instead of partnering with companies like ours, they are trying to grow internal expertise in AI. And I think no real serious uh, AI scientist would go and work for a pharma company for a long time. Because uh, even though they're claiming that they're open and you can get to work with a lot of data uh, and that it's going to be you know, an attractive salary, uh, they cannot move as quickly as we are. Uh, and uh, they cannot be as agile as uh, smaller startups. And instead of uh, you know, partnering there and experimenting, uh, they are trying to go for a very lengthy hiring cycle. Uh, they spend the... Uh, uh, a year to hire somebody uh, in machine learning uh, and sometimes fail 
uh, just because people don't want to uh, to work for them, uh, or sometimes go on a hiring spree and uh, you know hire a lot of uh, new grads uh, and uh, integrate them into their department, uh, and some of those people leave very quickly. Um, so I think that the uh, those two trends, so lack of trust and also focus on internal competencies uh, is a problem. And that's one of the reasons why I think that uh, companies like Amazon or Alibaba um, or Tencent are going to be much bigger players and healthier than the traditional pharmaceutical companies, just because you can already see uh, they're much more agile and much more collaborative than, uh, uh, than the pharma companies. Alex Dabronkov, CEO of Insilica Medicine. Alex, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.